Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, talking today to Kristen Luck. She has quite a varied background, but I think very relevant to insights and research and everything. And so I'm looking forward to talking to her. Let me give you a little bit of background. She's the founder and managing partner of Scalehouse, a management consulting firm dedicated to growing, optimizing, defending, and perpetuating enterprise value. Her passion project, she has many, but one of her uh, key ones is founder of Wire, Women in Research, and she's also the current president of ESOMAR, a community of insights and analysts uh, around the world. And she brings with her 20 years of experience and is a serial marketing measurement technology entrepreneur. (laughs) Welcome, and I I think you're welcome. You're you're in Greece, I should say, Kalispera, right? (laughs) <laughs> yes, Kelly Stone is right. It's the afternoon here. So, yes, I think sadly, um, I think I have almost 25 years of experience now. I'm going to be turning 50 this summer. So, yeah. All I'm right. Just, I used to be like the youngest person in the industry, and now I feel like I'm heading up there in age. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot to be said about experience, though, as you know, right? So, yeah, of course. So, uh, tell us a little bit how did you get from uh, the beginning to kind of where you are now? <laughs> Uh, if you can give us a little bit of an idea, maybe even some, if you had any personal aha moments that kind of, you know, um, made you go one direction versus another. Yeah, uh, I've had a very sort of circuitous uh, career path, I would say. I, I started out in social science research. It's part of how I worked my way through university. Uh, and then after I graduated, because I had so much experience uh, in in social science research, and I had a double major in journalism and statistics, which kind of lends itself perfectly to, to market research. I ended up getting a job right out of college at Lieberman in Los Angeles, which is now material, uh, and worked there a few years, really loved it, learned a lot in a very short period of time. I, I think material is sort of infamous for, uh, you know, having a pretty rigorous, uh, work schedule and, I would say that I I learned you know just about everything that you could learn about the research process in a very short period of time because of that. So I'm I'm ultra grateful that I was able to start my career there. I I you know I think I was there two or three years and then started hearing about online research and had just gotten my first computer at work, which was a a Mac Classic that took about 15 minutes to boot up in the morning. That's that's <laughs> a good indicator of how old I am. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, I, re- I remember that computer too. <laughs> yes, I know. You can like hit the little hamster in the wheel in the back. You know, it's just clicking away back there. You're hoping it's gonna the screen will come on at some point. But uh, but yeah, I you know, I was just really captivated by by online research. I managed to somehow completely um, bullshit my way into a job at AC Nielsen to build their first online research platform, knowing nothing about online research nor having built a platform before. So. Uh, as you can imagine, that that was a great learning experience for me. And then very quickly realized that Nielsen is not a great place to 
to have a startup. It's a very, you know, it's a very corporate, very rigorous, right. very rigid work environment. And so I ended up leaving to start my first company, OTX. But I, th- I think the, the one thing that has really served me well throughout my entire career in terms of my career path and, you know, now I'm an investment banker and a consultant and advisor, you know, which is very, very different from where I started many years ago. But I think it's a good indicator of what's what's always served me well throughout my career, which is I I gravitate and choose things that I'm really, really interested in and passionate about and that I'm excited about, uh, even if it seems a little off-piste from where I currently am career-wise. Like, I'm a big fan of lifelong learning mm-hmm. and uh, learning, learning new things. And so I'm, I don't really shy away from that at all. And I think that's been really fundamental to my success as a, as not just an entrepreneur, but just having a lot of work, work satisfaction on top of that. I think that's one of the key characteristics that a lot of successful people have is just genuine curiosity, right? To keep learning and keep exploring. And I'm kind of curious, you were kind of early on, uh, interested in online research, but what, what was it that kind of drew you that way? And obviously, that's kind of the place to be now, but I, I'm just curious, what kind of drew you early on? Because uh, not that many people were thinking about it at that time. Maybe, maybe it was the the pain of working on so many mall and phone studies that captivated <laughs> me about it. I I just really felt it was the way that the whole industry was going to be headed. And at that point, I think I was 27 or 28, maybe. I just was really excited about it, and I you know. I, to be honest, like I didn't really have a whole lot of experience using the internet at that point, as I think most people did not. Right. Uh, I just really felt like there's huge untapped opportunity there, and I wanted to be part part of that. And I remember at the time I sort of marched myself very boldly into Dave Sackman's office, and Dave was the I think he's the chairman now of Material, but he was the the C you know the CEO at the time. And I said, Dave, I just believe the whole industry is going to go online, and I want to. I want to be part of it. And he said, Kristen, we're not, we're not going online. And if you want to do that, then you might want to find someplace else. And he and I have joked about that conversation since I'm then. Sure. Like, I, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Cause I really love David and I have a ton of respect for him. And I enjoyed, you know, working, working at, at, at material, which was LRW at the time. I really loved it. So it was very hard for me to leave, but I really just really had to be part of that that next generation of research. And so I'm, I'm thankful that I was able to, to, you know, end up at Nielsen and then, you know, to be bold enough to strike out on my own, which was very bold because I didn't know anyone else that had ever started their own business. I don't come from a family of entrepreneurs and certainly the late nineties, I, I really didn't know anybody and particularly in research. This was before the days where research companies were able to get VC funding or were sold to private equity firms. I mean, none of that happened. I didn't know anybody who had raised money or started a business. And even when my business partner and I started OTX, we didn't, we didn't raise any money. We, we started it within the context of a, of a holding company who gave mm-hmm. us space and a place to work and some engineering support. And then we were just kind of off to the races. <laughs> That's great. And so were there any particular insights that you gleaned early on with online research? that you've seen that really turn into fruition now? Oh, boy. Uh, so many. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, what's interesting is that online research has evolved so much, and at the same time, it hasn't evolved at all. Uh, you know, I think that we do ourselves a disservice as an industry when we insist on taking survey designs that were created in the 70s and slapping them up online and calling them online research. Mm-hmm. It's 
you know, we're capable of so much more than that. And yet there is this very old school insistence, I think, by many people that, well, we can't change the questionnaires or we can't change the way we ask questions. We've got to have normative data. We, there's all of these barriers that people put up to innovation and change. And so, yes, even though as an industry, we have vastly pivoted toward online, I still don't think we've, we've even touched where we could be in terms of survey design, in terms of how we interact with respondents in really respectful ways and, and provide a really exceptional experience. Because the truth of the matter is that anytime you're delivering content online, whether that's a survey or a music video, you're competing with thousands of other options that people have in terms of the content that they're consuming. And so... Right. Where do you think it should go? Like, which direction are you thinking it's going to go or should go? Well, I, I, I would love to say that it, that it will go. But to be honest with you, I've been predicting every year kind of the state of the industry for years. And I don't think one of my predictions has ever come true. So <laughs> I either really suck at predictions or we're just a really stodgy industry in a lot of ways. What I can say is that, and I, I think this is also why we're seeing a, a pivot toward more behavioral data and behavioral research, which is, which is based on actual behaviors instead of self-reported behaviors. I, th I, I think that if we were really going to optimize online research, it would be to make surveys more interactive and, and to shorten them greatly. You know, oftentimes, and I'm sure you've seen this yourself, mm -hmm. we're trying to do two or three research projects in the same questionnaire. And it's, it's the scope creep that always happens, which is like, oh, we just need to ask one more question. Or like, let's put one more question in. And no, you know, we can't be all things to all people in one survey. And so, and I think, unfortunately, that's led to, led to long-term respondent dissatisfaction and a, and a degrading of the respondent experience which in turn, uh, you know, has commoditized respondents to, to a certain extent. I mean, if you look at where sampling prices are today versus where they were when I started out in the industry, I mean, I used, I remember I paid $13 per complete for a gen pop sample. Now it's like sub $1. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think in some ways, a lot of people should view research as an ongoing effort, not just a one-time project where they're trying to fit everything in. It's almost like you know, an yeah. ongoing effort and, not, and also not like an ongoing conversation they should be having yeah. on a regular basis with their customers and even employees. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're, we're seeing the rise of that, particularly, uh, you know, when we see more insourcing from brands, we're seeing a lot more of these custom communities where brands are having ongoing conversations with their customers instead of, you know, going out to these panels and and conducting primary research over and over again, they they are creating more community based ways of of getting to the answers and the insights that they need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people use the word insight, and I'm wondering if do you think people often use it correctly or incorrectly. How would you uh, define insight? I mean, I think in an insight is any piece of learning that you have, and I think people over engineer to think it's got to be some 45 page report with a you know. A, two-page summary in it or whatever. I, I think I think an insight is is any kind of aha moment that that you have. I don't think it has to be necessarily something big and median. Honestly, some of the some of the most impactful work that I've done is, have been from just those little moments where you're like, oh God, I wish I yeah, I didn't think of that before. You know, where where you're going into something thinking you have all the answers and then you realize you don't actually have any of the answers. You were completely off base. You were wrong from the beginning. Yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes the, the, the core truth comes out when you're actually looking at 
from a different perspective. And all of a sudden, like, oh, my God, that's really interesting. And that's what's really driving this. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Oh, and I think, I think, you know, my lived experience is very different than yours. And so we can, we can both look at the same brand or the same experience and have vastly different reactions to it. And I, I think that's the beauty of research is that you, you uncover these, these things that you, you had no idea they existed. I, I love that component of it. So tell me about the transition you made from uh, Nielsen to eventually starting your own company and actually becoming an investment banker. I think that's quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's been a very odd uh, auto mining past. But again, it goes back to what I was saying before. Like I always gravitate toward things that I'm really excited about. And I think that is the key to being successful at anything is, are you passionate about it enough so that you will work on it day and night and that you think about it and obsess about it all the time? And I am probably a bit of a, I'm not a bit. I am a workaholic. <laughs> I have in the past placed work above everything else in my life, including my relationships, which is why I've been divorced multiple times um, with apologies to my ex-husbands and <laughs> why I've chosen not to have children because I just derive so much joy out of working. I really love it. And I think I probably really love it because I'm working on things that I'm really passionate about and that I'm really excited about. And so uh, yeah, after OTX, you know, we sold OTX to a private equity firm and then eventually to Ipsos again. Uh, I was really interested in data visualization and reporting, and I felt like that was going to be the next big, you know, kind of breakthrough in terms of monetization in the industry. And I still believe that. Actually, I think that reporting has been really under-resourced from an investment and development standpoint. So, uh, but I, so I started a, a data visualization platform. I ended up uh, competing pretty heavily against Cypher, who had been one of my key competitors at OTX. And uh, ironically enough, I had ended up sitting next to Jamin Brazil, who ended up being my business partner. I ended up sitting next to him at an event in the south of France. Just by chance, we ended up sitting next to each other uh, and realized that rather than being sort of mortal competitor, you know, enemies and competitors, we actually really enjoyed talking to each other. And um, and so when I started stealing some business share from them, they approached me about joining forces and bringing my technology in. And uh, the the sort of tipping point for me was that I only wanted to do it if it meant that I was able to do something that I hadn't done before. Because in every in every career move that I make, I want to make sure that I'm always learning something new. And one of the things that I had not done in my career that I really wanted to do was to license software. And so when Jamin and our other business partner, Jamie, first approached me about joining forces. I said, I'm super interested, but only if we were going to take the Decipher platform and we were going to start licensing it. And they were like, no, I don't think we're going to do that. We're going to stay in the services business. And I was like, eh, no, that's not really that interesting to me, just programming, hosting surveys, you know. And then maybe a year or two later, they came back and they were like, nope, let's, let's do it. So... But again, I never licensed software before. I never created a go-to-market strategy for software. Uh, it, you know, it took us longer to develop the front end of that platform than we thought we were going to. But then again, eventually we scaled the business and we had an amazing exit. And uh, I was fortunate that at the end of that that journey, that I was able to 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 leave. I didn't have a really long earnout. I could, you know, I was there a couple months and then. I was kind of off to the next thing and I had to make some decisions about what, what was that next thing going to be? 
And I, there's a, um, there's actually this really great little chat book by Marcus Buckingham. It's called, uh, I think it's called the truth about you. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever, ever read it. it. It, I mean, it would probably take most people like 20 minutes to read it. Like it's not a super long read, but it has this really interesting exercise in it, which is for a week you, you spend, you know, you write down everything that you did that you really loved doing and everything that you did that you really loathed doing. Uh, and we, we went through this exercise at Decipher because when I first joined the company, uh, you know, Jamin and Jamie and I were all at a point in our careers where we were good at everything. We'd done every role in every company. We knew how to do everything. And so what ended up happening is that we were stepping on each other's toes a lot. And we couldn't get anything done because every time we wanted to get something done, we all had to meet and then we'd have to make a decision together. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, I have, what have I done? I have sold my firm now to this company. This is misery getting permission <laughs> to do everything. And so we went through this exercise to kind of try to divide up what our roles were within the company. And I was really horrified to find out that what I really loved doing and what I was good at was sales and marketing. I mean, for, I was horrified. I mean, cause I'd never done that before really in a, in a role, but I was doing it. So, and I think sales, I was just on actually a chat string about this earlier today, you know, sales kind of has a dirty connotation in the research industry. Like nobody wants to be a salesperson right. or be in a sales role. People are like terrified of it. But I think if you think of it as like relationship development, relationship nurturing, it's a really different take on it, which is what I'm, I'm good at. I, I enjoy it. Yeah. I'm selling something we, we, we all do on a regular basis, even a presentation. You're selling your yeah. view and your, and your ideas. So unfortunately it has a, you know, a dirty connotation to it, but we're always selling. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So when I exited Decipher, I had to, you know, I went through that same practice. And what I realized was it wasn't really the starting of companies that I loved so much. It was the scaling and all the problems that come along with scaling. And I thought, gosh, if I could just work with other founders all day long to help them scale and monetize their businesses, that would be the most fun that I could have. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, I started out doing that. I spent a couple of years doing it. And then I realized as I was moving people sort of down this path toward an exit, I was having to kind of excuse myself right before the exit because I didn't, I didn't have my investment banking license. And so I couldn't work on the M&A piece of it because you have to be licensed and, and go through FINRA. You know, there's all this banking compliance around it. Right. Nor did I, you know, I'd always been through that M&A process from the seller side, never from a buyer side. And so it was a really great opportunity for me to learn something new. And so I went and got my investment banking license, which if, to anyone who's listening, would not recommend very hard. <laughs> uh, it took me six months of studying pretty much every night and every weekend. I'm, I'm quite sure I know that I cried several times and I don't think I've ever felt that dumb in my entire life, but I did pass my exams the first time around. So uh, it all it all worked out. <laughs> That's great. That's great. You know, part of what I'm listening to your story, and I, I'm, I'm getting sensing you have good intuition. And a lot of times, the intuition and insight are related, and your intuition yeah. kind of led you in a path where you kind of sense where things are headed, and you are willing to pursue that. You know, and really at, at, at any cost because it's something you feel passionate about. And I think that's something people can learn about is that there is a, a, a good part of intuition involved in this where you're able to kind of feel and sense where things are headed. Is that correct in your, in your story? 
Yeah, for sure. But I also think that that is that is spurred by a lot of reading. I I read a ton, and I think people don't spend enough time paying attention to what is going on around them. And and when I say reading, I don't mean reading stuff about what's going on in the research industry. I mean things that are other things that are going on in the world. Like I get some of my best speaking ideas or product ideas or business ideas from reading the New Yorker or reading the Atlantic or understanding what trends are driving growth in which areas of the world or looking at how our lives have changed so much during COVID. Like I did a ton of reading during COVID because it was interesting to see like how, you know, how are people's behaviors changing through all of this? Right. You know, how's digital entertainment changing? How, how, how is the way that we buy and we consume and what's important to us and where we live? Like, how is all that changing? And how is that impacting like the future of work and the future of business? And I think, you know, once you kind of immerse yourself in, in, in learning and reading, on a daily basis, then it be, it's just a reflex. I mean, you're going to do it naturally. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of times you read and then you're able to take something from over here and over here and kind of combine it together. Uh, I've often said that I think some of the best uh, people who talk about insights are comedians, right? Because they take something yeah. from over here and over here, put it together, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I've never thought of it that way. That's so true. And I think that's yeah. really kind of what you're kind of doing. You know, you're, you're expanding your mind, looking at different things, and you're kind of saying, but I think underlying all that, you'll also have a good sense of uh, understanding consumer behavior and how people kind of behave and then say, oh, this is interesting over here. I think this could be applied over here as well. It could be a really interesting solution. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of think of my learning process as like a Venn diagram where I'm, I read an interesting article and then I read something else and I'm like, oh, it'd be so <laughs> cool if you put those two things together or like, what if you... What if you have this and then you, you, you know, like I, I think that they're just because a topic seems unrelated doesn't necessarily mean that it is. Right. Exactly. So you've been through this journey about starting businesses and having them grow and stuff. And I'm curious, what would you say are common mistakes many people do that maybe you could say them a few steps based on what you've learned and gleaned and experienced? Oh gosh, I've made a lot of mistakes, which is why I really love consulting because I like, I like being able to to illuminate those for other people. Because I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, when you look at their uh, their profile, myself included, when you look at what I've done on LinkedIn, it just looks like I've had success after success after success. Everything's been a success, but they don't see all the mistakes I made, all the nights that I cried, uh, you know, all the times I thought maybe I was going to lose my house or my investments that I had made or, you know, there's, you don't see any of that. And so I think, I think looking, looking back, there are a few things that, that I would, I would say were mistakes that I made and that I try to impart on other founders when they're thinking about monetizing their business. The first is I always felt like I had to be able to do every role in the company and that, is not only incorrect, but it's incredibly unhealthy. And I mean, when I say every role, I mean, I was coming into my businesses and like cleaning the bathrooms on the weekend because, because I was like, well, I am capable of cleaning the bathroom and do I want to spend the money on it? No. And, um, and I know that I can do it, but just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean that's a good use of your time. And so what I always tell founders is you really have to spend the majority of your time working on the business and not in it Mm -hmm. because 
you know, there's the business of, you know, if we're talking about research firms, there's the business of research that's actually conducting research. And then there's the business of running a research business. Those are two totally different things. Right. Like for me, like I never went to business school. I, I mean, I barely graduated university. And so for me to go and start my own company, I mean, that was madness. I didn't even know what a P&L statement was at that point. And, and so it's like really understanding that those are two very, very different skill sets. And, and you've got to be able to run a research business and understand how to run a business. And I, I also think it's something that gets in the way for those people who are listening that don't want to start their own business, but they want to rise in the executive ranks. I think a lot of researchers don't understand that in the early stages of your career, yeah, you have to be great at research in order to get ahead. But in the later stages, you also have to understand how what you're doing impacts the success of the business that you're working in. So, you know, I always tell people like, think like a CFO and present like a CMO. Like those are the things you need to be thinking about. Like what's the CFO care about? CFO cares about making money and revenue and meeting the quarterly targets. And those are all financial objectives. Uh, Those are really different than I think what most researchers are brought up to think about. We just focus on a project by project or you know, problem by problem basis, rather than looking holistically at the at the whole business. So, I agree with you. I think you know a lot of researchers do need to learn how to do research well, but eventually they need to become storytellers and, and to be able to convey yeah. what these insights you're gleaning because the insights aren't as good as your ability to communicate them properly and in telling an entire story that people truly understand. Yeah, I also think that people don't understand. It's interesting because for all the training that we've had in this industry about storytelling, I feel like people still don't understand really the basics of storytelling, which is that it is circular in nature. It has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the beginning and the end have to tie together. And I see so many people telling a story and it's like, they get to the end and they tell it and it's like, okay, but how is it related to the beginning? Right. Yeah, yeah. there has to be a cohesion all throughout, absolutely. Right, right. So, yeah, so anyway, that's, but going back to the, the, you know, the things that I think drive success for entrepreneurs, I think also understanding the, the different levels of growth that drive a business. And I think one of the, the most ironic things about market research and market research businesses is that we are literally the worst at marketing, the worst. <laughs> we don't understand marketing. We don't want to invest any money in it. We think it's a waste of time and money. I mean, if you, if you look, the majority of market research firms, they do not spend money on marketing, nor do they think it's a good use of money. And oh my God, the irony behind that. <laughs> when all we do all day is, you know, spend time testing marketing campaigns for a lot of people, you know, that's the majority of the work that they're doing. Right. But yet they don't believe in it themselves. Or even, they don't even believe in conducting research on their own brands. I can't even tell you how many CEOs I've talked to who are like, well, do you know what your brand awareness is? Would you consider running some research on that? Oh my God, no, they would never spend a dime. No, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't yeah. spend a dime on it. You know, it's interesting with the industry, there's players coming in originally from the research uh, you know, background and stuff, but then there's a lot of players coming in from the technology background that are just trying to kind of learn research. So it's kind of interesting. It converges what's going on. And I was wondering what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah. Well, I spend a lot of time with tech founders that are coming into this space who are building products without really understanding how researchers work with data or what some of the limitations are around primary research data, which is good in some ways because 
when you do have this kind of mindset of all these different limitations or ways that you traditionally work with data, it can be very hard to remove yourself from that and look at new ways of doing things. And so I think that that these new players coming in are super important for our research ecosystem, but they're, you know, it's a having them understand what the ethics and standards are behind research data, but also giving them some latitude to, to, to create new products and services that I think provide better, more accurate, more reliable data than maybe we've, we've had access to in the past. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of innovation coming from outside, but I think they also need to adhere to some, uh, you know, strong and, and uh, market research principles as well. But yeah, for I think sure. very interesting what's yeah. happening, the convergence of the two for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, we have to be very, very careful. And I think this is, this is a, a place where a lot of tech companies or even, you know, marketing research startups get into trouble is when they don't understand the line between marketing and research. Mm-hmm. And, and that when we are conducting research, we don't market and try to sell to respondents. Right. And I, I see that line crossed occasionally and I'm like, ah, that can't happen. <laughs> hey, yeah, We're compromising, yeah. you know, the, the data. So, um, but I do, you know, like I said, I do think it's, I do, I do like the energy and the ideation and, and the product development that those firms are bringing into the space. It's just how, you know, how, how we work with those companies and those, and those products, I think that we're, that we're still working through. So where do you kind of see the future of research kind of going? I know you don't like predicting, but I know you're always thinking about the I'm next, always wrong. Next, next thing. Yes. Well, it's you not about being right or wrong. It's, it's about thinking about where possibilities. And sometimes, you know, you might be wrong, not necessarily on, uh, it's more on the timing, more likely than actually what happens, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the hardest thing to predict is the timing, but I think in the direction right. where things are going, you probably have a pretty good sense. Yeah. You know, maybe 15 years from now, someone will be listening to this and like, she nailed it. She was just 15 <laughs> years too early. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm a huge proponent for behavioral data. I think it's, I think it's so powerful. Behavioral data collected with permission. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that because I think there are some people collecting that data in not particularly ethical ways, but, um, but I think behavioral data is really powerful. I, I don't think it's going to, completely replace primary research data but i do think that it's a it's a it's an amazing <laughs> augment and friend to primary research and i think it provides us with a level of learning and insight that we wouldn't be able to get otherwise and and to be living in a time where we have access to that i think it's it's super powerful and i think it's really going to fundamentally change the the way that researchers work with data moving forward and, and that's you know i think another Another area where we can learn a lot from data scientists or folks that come out of more of a business intelligence background mm-hmm. is that research, as researchers, we get so hung up on just working with primary research data that when other types of data come into play, we don't really know what to do with them. We're kind of confounded by it, by that. And so I think one of the things that we really have to do is upskill ourselves as an industry so that we are able to work with different types of data and we can talk intelligently about the benefits of doing that. And how do you see primary research in? Because I think a lot of times with all this behavioral data and all this uh, big data, it sometimes gets lost because we don't have the context upon which to look uh, look into that. And that's when primary research comes in. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think primary research is still still important. I mean, I think that behavioral data tells you the actual behavior. It doesn't tell you why someone right. why someone did something. That's That's where the questioning piece of it. 
comes into play. I also think that, and I think COVID has helped help this some, um, ironically, is that I think one of the reasons that that qualitative data maybe hasn't been used as, as much in the past is just because it wasn't as digitized as quantitative was. But now with COVID and people relying more on those online collection methods, I think a lot of folks that were really resistant to taking qualitative research online now have had to because they've been they've been forced to do it in many ways and are now understanding, oh, well, I can actually collect good quality data and get real insights from it. It just happens to be in a different data collection mode. Right. And then it's pros and cons to each methodology, of course, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I I also think that like there's, you know, if you look at some platforms that are coming out, you know, like Remesh has, you know, this AI driven qualitative solution that I think is really cool. Um, There's a company called the Evolved Group that's coming out of Australia that has a conversational AI component in their quantitative research, which is, which is awesome and offers just, you know, more, more of this probing on open-ended data that almost turns quantitative studies, you know, into, into having a qualitative component, which I think is, is super powerful too. And so it's like, can we get more qualitative insights at scale? Yeah, I think we do. If we, if we can use technology for, for good. Yep. I agree. So I wanted to ask you if, uh, uh, who in the world of consumer insights, research, marketing, would you most like to have lunch with and why? Oh boy. You know what? I probably, I would probably like to, and I, and I don't know what his name is. I can't think of what his name is right now, but the, 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 and I would probably say that I want to want to have lunch with the whole executive team, the, the <laughs> folks that are running morning console. I just think they're, you know, from a, from a polling and insights perspective, just doing super interesting work. And I think they're one of the, one of the big companies to watch in, in our sector. Why don't you tell us what, what they're doing? Some of our listeners might not know what they're doing. So. Um, well, to be honest, like I'm not, I'm not in the loop on every single business product that they have, but they, you know, they, they're just providing insights on a massive scale about consumer trends and behaviors. And uh, I think they're, they're doing it in a way that's really different from, from traditional polling or kind of these traditional omnibus or, or tracking studies. Uh, and, and because of that, I think they're, their data is just incredibly relevant and timely and they're just doing an exceptional job of communicating and getting their, their research into the media and, uh, and giving people access to, to data. I think that maybe they haven't had access to before. So yeah, I think they're, they're doing some exciting stuff and yeah. It's really they're at the cutting edge of some interesting things. Yeah. 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 I'm always I'm always interested in talking to people that take like traditional models and kind of turn them on their ear and come out and they're like all of a sudden they're going gangbusters and you're like, where do these people come from? I've never <laughs> heard of them before. And all of a sudden they're a two hundred million dollar company, you know, and they get this huge round of funding. You're like, What? So yeah. yeah. I'm always kind of fascinated by those by those stories. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating time for sure with the changes in the research and technology and everything converging. It's really an exciting time. Well, not only that, but just the amount of money that is coming into this sector has really transformed the industry a lot. And I think it's had some really positive effects, obviously. Like we've been, you know, companies have been able to grow and scale exponentially faster. We're getting better research solutions. We've got more access to technology and products are being developed more quickly. And I think those are all the positives. I think the negatives are that 
private equity firms have much, much different priorities than business owners and, and traditional researchers. And so when you see this, you know, focus on profitability at all costs, then you end up with this downward pricing pressure on sampling, for instance. So I can assure you that if you're paying $6 per complete and it's coming from a panel that's reputable and doesn't have a lot of churn issues and is respectful about the respondents and compensating them appropriately, you're getting a much different quality of sample than you would going through an exchange where you're paying 50 cents per complete. You yeah. just are. Yeah. yeah. I agree. And it makes a big difference. Yeah. It does. I, and I also think like when respondents feel like they're being compensated correctly for the value of their data, I think that, you know, that's another issue that we have to contend with is that people for the first time are understanding that their data has value. Yeah. And, and a lot of people aren't going to give it away for free anymore. And so we need to compensate them for it. But that also means our business models need to change. And I think that is a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow, particularly private equity firms. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that as I work with private equity firms on a daily basis, like I understand that, you know, I, I, I as a founder had sold to private equity multiple times, I understand what the ethos is there and what they're trying to accomplish. But I also just think in general, if you look at, at businesses today, the expectations of profitability have far, far outpaced like the, the rest of society. Like if you look at what, and you know, I talk a lot about income equality. It's a huge passion project of mine and like taxation on the rich because I think that is what drives a lot of income inequality. But if you look at how CEO pay and profits of companies have paced as compared to like minimum wage, for example, in many countries, they're so far out of whack. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a huge disparity. Yeah. And it's the same thing in research. You know, if you look at the cost of a research study compared to what a respondent is getting compensated, when they're the, the, the very foundation of everything that we're doing, there's a huge disparity there. And it's just a matter of time before it's going to come back and bite us. Yeah, and I think that's where the technology may become the equalizer eventually as well. So. Yes. And I think, I think you're right. I think more and more people are becoming knowledgeable, especially consumers that their data is valuable. And I think that might be one of the reasons that I think a lot of investment companies are looking into this space and throwing money because they realize that data is the new gold, right? I mean, there's a lot of value. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've heard everything from data is the new oil to it's the new gold. But yes, I think that, I think that, yes, there's a lot of money coming in here because data monetization is huge. And also when you look at some of the, some of the fundamental changes that are happening in marketing, you know, Google is getting rid of cookies at the end of 2023. Well, what does that mean for advertisers and marketers and people that are working in measurement? Like that's a pretty significant change. It is. Yeah. It is. And, and there, I think that's when consumers can realize they're even more valuable, right? Because you're definitely going to need your permission to be able to capture anything. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, GDPR has already had that effect to a certain extent, but not to the extent that, it, that you know, losing, losing that cookie-based data is, is going to have an impact on advertisers. And I think Google recognizes that too, the, the impact of their own business and the impact of their advertisers, which is likely why they put it off for another year <laughs> <laughs> to give themselves more time and to give, you know, the advertisers more time. Well, it's definitely going to take time to transition to that for sure. So. For sure. For sure. But there's, you know, there's already m multiple solutions coming out. You know, you've got companies like Haifa that are offering zero party data and are offering, uh, you know, a real alternative to, some of the more traditional solutions and 
you know, not just cookies, but also Nielsen, uh, you know, Nielsen suing them now to, you know, to, you know, because obviously they're typhus onto something. Um, or you've got, uh, companies like distillery, which are, you know, really focused on creating audience segmentations. Like, you know, that's another way of, of getting to that data. And so right. I think we're only going to see more of the solutions come out in the coming months. Yeah. And I think that in the end, I think we're going to win it with more insights as well as consumers are going to benefit as well. So. For sure. Yeah. Well, that's the hope, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the target at least. Exactly. So, right. Yeah. Well, this has been great talking to you. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us from Greece. I understand a little bit of snow there as well, which is unusual. We did. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know, there's no global warming or climate change, but I will say, you know, I've been living here off and on for almost nine years now. And it's just in the last couple of years where we, it has consistently snowed at least a couple of days every, every year. But, but last night was exceptional. And it was the first time ever that I'd been in the middle of a snowstorm that had lightning. Wow. I mean, it must, so, look, it must look pretty amazing in Athens to see, uh, you know, the ancient uh, sites in, in a little bit of snow. It must be pretty, pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah, I woke up to the, I have a view of the Acropolis from my house. And so I woke up to this beautiful view of the Acropolis covered oh, in, wow. in stuff. It's unusual, great. yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again, Kristen. Really enjoyed talking to you and uh, enjoy your time in Greece. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, thanks a lot. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.